Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. All right, good morning. So this is our third and final week in our mini-series on brothers in the book of Genesis. Two weeks ago, we looked at Cain and Abel. The week before that, we looked at Jacob and Esau. And today, we're finishing by looking at the story of Joseph and his ten half-brothers. Joseph actually had eleven brothers in total. Ten half-brothers and one full brother. And together, these were the twelve sons of Jacob, also known as Israel, the main character from last week's story. And uh, this message is called Joseph and the Ten Brothers because it's the relationship between him and his ten half-brothers that we're going to focus on. That's where the drama really is. And it's quite a story. If, you're not, if you've never heard of it before, you're, you're in for something special. So, like last week, the story is way too long to read the whole thing. If I read the whole thing, that's all we do today. Um, so we're going to read a few parts, and then I'll do my best to summarize the rest. But if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity to learn from the scriptures together. Uh, Lord, help us to attend to you, to focus on you right now. And Lord, we are just open to hear from your spirit whatever it is that you want to teach us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. All right. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an, 
and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So, Joseph is dad's favorite. So much so that he gives him a special robe to wear. Uh, the translation that I read called it an ornate robe. The message paraphrase calls it an elaborately embroidered coat. Some translations call it a coat of many colors. Uh, we're not entirely sure what the translation should be, but the point here is that this is a luxury item. Maybe it's the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a father giving his son a sports car. And you can imagine how that would go over if a father gave a sports car to one son, but not the other 11. Jacob, we can see, seems to be repeating the same family's dysfunction that his parents were guilty of, right? Which is showing preferential treatment to one child in particular. Remember from last week that Rebecca loved Jacob, but nothing said about her loving Esau. And Isaac loved Esau, but nothing said about her lo him loving Jacob. Uh, so this is never a good family dynamic, right? This obvious preferential treatment for one child over the other. Joseph's 11 brothers know that he's dad's favorite, and so they hate him. They can't speak a kind word to him. And then Joseph has this dream that seems to represent his brothers bowing down to him, honoring him, which he probably should have kept to himself, um, but he doesn't, and so they hate him even more. And eventually, their resentment leads to some really shocking behavior. One day, Joseph's brothers have gone out to uh, graze their father's flocks, and Jacob says to Joseph, go, go check on them and come back and let me know how things are going. So Joseph leaves, and then this is what happens, starting in verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, that's the oldest of the brothers, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no, there was no water in it. So just clarifying, he wasn't about to drown, right? As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. 
Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on it. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Very conscientious. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said. I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. All right. Now, if you haven't noticed, there's a similarity in all these stories of brothers that we've looked at, which is that at some point, one brother wants to kill the other right? Cain killed Abel, Esau wanted to kill Jacob, and here Joseph's brothers want to kill him. The Bible does not sugarcoat human nature at all. It's very honest about sin and the ways that sin ruins relationships. And in this story, we see how the terrible sin of envy destroys a family. I think there are two themes in this story that, well, two themes that I really want to bring out this morning. And the first is envy. Envy is a very destructive force. What is envy exactly? Well, I heard a Jewish folktale a while ago that I think captures envy well. Once there was a shopkeeper who was very envious of a shopkeeper down the street. And one day an angel came to him and said, you can have anything that you ask for, but there's one condition. Whatever you ask for, the shopkeeper down the street will get double. So he was very disappointed about that. He thought about it for a little while. And then he said, okay, fine. Make me blind in one eye. So that's envy, right? It's not just wanting what somebody has that you don't have. It's hating them because they have what you don't have. It's a desire to see people punished for having the very thing that you wish you had. And when you think about it, that is completely irrational, right? There is a terrible absurdity to envy. And yet, it is one of the most common emotions that human beings experience, going all the way back to Cain who slew his brother Abel out of envy. 
Joseph's brothers want what he has. They want the love of their father. They want the luxury coat. They want the promises of a glorious future. They want what he has, and so they hate him for it with murderous rage. Now, fortunately, that oldest brother in the family, Reuben, he is not completely possessed by envy, right? And he stops them short of killing Joseph that day. He's probably the one thing besides the providential working of God that, that kept Joseph from being killed. And he suggests, well, just throw him in a cistern. You know, he probably thought that a little bit of bullying would be enough to get it out of their system. But it's not. And so when Reuben isn't looking, they take Joseph out and they sell him into slavery. Now, of course, the brothers cannot go back home and tell their father that they did this. And so they concoct this lie. They take Joseph's special luxury robe and they dip it in animal's blood. And then they bring that to their father so that he thinks that Joseph was killed. And, Joseph, or, and Jacob says that he will mourn until the day he dies because of this. So let's just take a moment right now to appreciate what envy has done to this family. It's led one son to be sold into slavery. It has filled a father with inconsolable grief. And then we should also consider what it has done to those ten brothers as well. It has turned them into slave traders and liars. Like Cain, now they must be restless wanderers. And no, I don't mean literally restless wanderers, but in their souls they must be restless wanderers. Their souls will not be able to have rest because now they have to carry the fact that they did this terrible thing for the rest of their lives. And they have to be fearful that they might be exposed, right? They have to make special effort to hide. Now their lives are characterized by hiding, just like Adam and Eve hiding from God, from God in the Garden of Eden. This is what they have to live with now. Their envy has brought them nothing but guilt, fear, and separation from the Father whose love that they craved in the first place. Now they have to pretend and lie to him for the rest of their lives. Or confess the crime that they committed, right? So let's let this story be a warning to us. If you have envy in your heart, and all of us have the potential for it, don't feed it. It's not something to mess around with. And recognize envy for the evil that it is. Envy and love are incompatible. Paul wrote very plainly in his uh, famous description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy. It does not envy. Love doesn't hate those who have reasons to rejoice. Love does what? It rejoices with those who rejoice. And it mourns with those who mourn. That's the way love works. It shares people's joy rather than resenting them for it. Now, the second theme that I want to focus on this morning comes from the rest of the story. So before I say what it is, we have to look at what happens next. So after Joseph is sold into slavery, he ends up in Egypt. And over the years in Egypt, he gains an influence and reputation. 
And one of the things that he gains a reputation for is being somebody who can interpret dreams. Through the power of God, he is able to interpret dreams. And eventually, Pharaoh has a dream that disturbs him, and so he seeks out Joseph to help him interpret this dream. He has a, a dream where he sees seven healthy cows, and then that's followed by seven extremely ugly, skinny cows, disturbingly ugly cows. And then these skinny cows eat up the healthy cows. And the Pharaoh's like, I don't know what this means, but I've got to figure this out. And so Joseph tells him, he has an answer right away. He says, the seven healthy cows represent what the next seven years are going to be like in Egypt. It's going to be a time of plenty. But then those seven years of plenty are going to be followed by seven years of famine. So he says, this is what you need to do. Over the next seven years, you need to set aside a fifth of the harvest and put it in reserves so that when those seven years of famine come, there's going to be enough food to sustain Egypt. And when Pharaoh hears this, he is so impressed. He's amazed by Joseph's wisdom, and he's so amazed that he makes him second in command over all of Egypt. So in a period of 13 years, Joseph has gone from being this teenager sold into slavery to being the second guy in charge of the country. And uh, sure enough, exactly what Joseph said happens. Those seven years pass. They store up the reserves. And then when famine strikes the land, Joseph becomes the one that people go to in order to receive food. Joseph becomes the dispenser of life for all of Egypt. Now, of course, the famine hasn't just hit Egypt. It's hit the surrounding area as well. And that includes... Joseph's estranged family, his father and all his brothers. And one day, old Jacob learns that there is grain in Egypt. And so he tells his ten, Joseph's ten half-brothers to go to Egypt and to try to buy some grain. And so these ten brothers, the ten brothers that betrayed Joseph, end up before him asking for food for life. Now, they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And Joseph is not quite ready, you know, to run out and give him a hug. You might remember last week that uh, that's what Esau did with Jacob. That was a remarkable thing. Uh, but Joseph, he's not there yet. He's got a lot of emotions. It tells us that multiple times he, he runs off to go and weep on his own. And uh, he actually toys with them for several chapters. It goes on for quite a while. Uh, first thing he does is he accuses them of being spies. And then he says, well, if you want to prove that you're not spies, I hear you have a 12th brother, so go back home and then bring that 12th brother back here, which they do end up doing. And then when he sends them back home a second time, he plants a special silver chalice in the youngest brother's backpack so that someone can then go and accuse the youngest brother of stealing it. And they'll all get in trouble, right? And so sure enough, that's what happens. The youngest son is accused of stealing the, the silver chalice. Poor, poor kid, right? And, uh, and all the brothers end up back before Joseph again. And Joseph says, now the youngest brother, because he stole, he stole that chalice, he's going to have to stay here forever as a slave. 
And it's at this point that one of the brothers gives a long speech. And he says, look, our father, he lost a son years ago. And if he loses this son too, it'll kill him. He won't be able to handle it. And it's at this point that Joseph, realizing the pain of his father, can't bear it anymore. He cracks and he admits who he really is. And he embraces his brothers. Now, at first, his brothers are terrified. But instead of feeding their terror, Joseph reassures them. And this is what he says. Um, we get to it. He says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And then he says, go back, get our father, get your families, get your children, get your children's children, get your flocks and herds, bring them all here to Egypt and I will provide for you. So Joseph has had a shift in perspective where he's realized that the worst thing that happened to him, being betrayed by his brothers, actually has ended up leading to the best thing. Because that betrayal put him in Egypt where he was enabled to save many, many lives, including the lives of the very people that betrayed him in the first place. Joseph says later, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So this brings me to the second theme I want to emphasize, which is God's ability to bring good out of bad. Now, I want to be very careful here. I don't want us to take this idea the wrong way. We should not think that God causes evil things to happen. For example, I do not think that God caused Joseph's brothers to envy him and to want to kill him. If we assume that, we would be assuming that God is the one who puts sinful desires in our hearts. And the New Testament is clear that that is not the case. In the book of James, he writes, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And John wrote, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we're saying that God puts sinful desires in people's hearts, I think it's hard to say, in him there is no darkness at all. But what a story like Joseph should remind us is that God is always working to bring good out of the evil that we do. God can take the soil of evil and somehow make flowers bloom out of it. It might take time. In Joseph's case, it took a full 13 years for those flowers to bloom. But God can take something terrible and then use it, transform it, to create something beautiful. Now, Jesus promised us, in this world you will have trouble. That is a promise. No one makes it through this life without some tragedy. It's a sad reality. And we should feel God's permission to mourn that, to grieve that. But even in our grief, we have a reason to hope. 
We should not mourn like those who have no hope. God can bring good out of the terrible. And the greatest evidence of this is the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus was a terrible evil. It was horrific. It was unjust. A sinless man subjected to awful violence and death. But through that terrible event, God brought resurrection life and forgiveness of sins. And a new creation. If the cross is at the center of our faith, then we should always have a reason to hope. Now, again, that does not mean that we should not grieve deeply over evil. We should. But it means we always have a reason to hope that God can redeem even the worst. And we need that hope. We need it. Jesus, we might say, is the greater Joseph that gives us a reason for that hope. Ever since the early days of the church, people saw Joseph's life as what you would call a prefigurement of Christ. In other words, they saw in Joseph's life something that was foreshadowing what would ultimately be fulfilled through Jesus. So let's think about this. This is cool. So like Joseph, Jesus was hated by his own, right? And he was hated by them. Why? Because they envied him. That's what it says in the Gospels when the chief priests and the elders of the law hand Jesus over to be crucified. It says it was because of envy that they did this. Like Joseph, Jesus was rejected and despised because of his father's love for him and because he was destined to rule. Like Joseph, Jesus was given great authority and greater, far greater authority than Joseph, right? Not just authority over Egypt, but authority over all the nations. And like Joseph, Jesus is the one who is able to feed the hungry, only he is able to feed us with the bread of life, just as Joseph was the dispenser of bread to hungry people, Jesus is the dispenser of the bread of life. And Jesus, like Joseph, is willing to give the bread of life to all of those who will come to him, even those who have sinned against him. And this is one of the ways that Jesus is an even, uh, even greater than Joseph, right? Because Joseph... Joseph had conflicting emotions about that when sinners came to him and wanted bread. But Jesus doesn't have conflicting emotions when we come to him for the bread of life. Even though we have wronged him, even though we have sinned against him, Jesus freely pardons and freely gives us what we need. Jesus welcomes us to receive the bread of life that only he can offer, and he forgives us, and like Joseph, he says, I will provide for you. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be the greater Joseph. Lord, we pray that we would receive freely the bread of life that you offer, that we would not hold back from coming to you. And we, we thank you, Lord, that you freely pardon. Lord, we, if we're carrying envy in our hearts, we pray that you would purge it from us and that you would replace that envy with, with love. 
And if any of us today are um, struggling with, with evil that has been done to us, feel, struggling to see any meaning in it, Lord, um, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with that hope, that knowledge, that, that you can work and you do work to bring beautiful things out of what is ugly. Lord, we thank you that in all things you work for the good of those who love you. Help us to trust that. In Jesus' name, amen.